Hello, I'm Dr. Louise Newson, and welcome to my podcast. I'm a GP and menopause specialist, and I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre here in Stratford-upon-Avon. I'm also the founder of the Menopause Charity and the Menopause Support App called Balance. On the podcast, I will be joined each week by an exciting guest to help provide evidence-based information and advice about both the perimenopause and the menopause. So today in the podcast, I have with me Jonathan Underhill, who was very kindly introduced to me recently, and he's a pharmacist, but he's also a consultant clinical advisor for the Medicines Optimization Team at NICE, which is the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence. And it's a real honour, actually, to talk to you because I got in touch with you about some guidelines, which we'll talk about. But before we talk about those, Jonathan, I'd just like to say welcome to the podcast. Hello, Louise. <laughs> and just, that's a bit of a mouthful. So Medicines Optimization Team, you actually said MOT, which <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for most people, it's about their car, is it really? Just explain, if you don't mind, like what your role is with this and how you got into that, if that's okay. Sure, yes. So obviously, NICE, as you say, is the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. We are the organisation funded by the Department of Health who aim to reduce uncertainty and try and reduce variation in care. So we produce clinical guidelines where we look at the evidence that's out there for particular how you treat diagnose, manage different conditions and create recommendations that are aimed to help clinicians to make better decisions for the patients under their care. And we also will do health technology assessments. If a new medicine comes to market, then what we will do is we'll look at the evidence for that technology, do a cost-effectiveness analysis of it and say whether it's likely to be a cost-effective option for the NHS to use. Mm. So within NICE, NICE is a big organisation now, 500-odd people working there. The medicines team is around, it's quite a small team. We've got about 20, 25 people. We work in the Centre for Guidelines at NICE. We are largely pharmacists, like myself. We have some a couple of doctors as well and sort of operations staff. And, and our role really is to look at those clinical guidelines where there is a what we call a large medicines component to it. Because most NICE guidance does contain something about medicines, but some of them don't. Yeah. So we concentrate on those ones where we can add value to the process really and look at it from a sort of a medicines perspective. I mean, I came into the organisation from another organisation called the National Prescribing Centre. The NPC, yeah. The NPC, yeah. So we were a Department of Health organisation who were primarily, our aim was to support prescribing and again, medicines usage. We produce prescribing bulletins, we do educational events and produce educational resources to try and again support the sort of medicine optimization out in the IHS. So, as a pharmacist, that was quite useful for me. It's an interesting journey for me as well because I, I spent a lot of time doing sort of educational events for prescribers, for GPs, for nurses, and pharmacists. And if you like, being a proponent of evidence-based medicine, thinking that if I just told people the evidence or <laughs> taught them the evidence, that that would miraculously change their practice. But it doesn't. And of course, it's it's much more complex than that. And that yeah. took me down with colleagues into a sort of interest in how humans make decisions mm. and how people learn and how we influence other people. 
and latterly in the last few years I've become really really interested in shared decision making and how you involve patients and people in the decisions about the choices they make around their own health care. It's really interesting and I've talked about this before in the podcast actually so when I qualified in the early 90s it was very old-fashioned paternalistic medicine we'd give them the green piece of paper well in hospital it was just this is you that you go on a ward round you'd prescribe drugs wouldn't even tell them what they were actually and they'd yes. help you do their TTOs their takeaway drugs and you know, a nurse might go through with it, them, or sometimes a pharmacist, but people generally wouldn't know what they were taking, but they would probably take them, or maybe they'd end up in their cupboard in their bathroom. I've got no idea, but you think you were doing a good job as a doctor because that's how you were taught. And obviously things have really changed, but well. it's really hard <laughs> to keep up to date as well, isn't it? Especially as a GP, because you've got so much going on. And I've always been really keen with evidence-based medicine, but I've had the luxury, though, Jonathan, of working part-time. Mm. So I've done a lot of medical writing and a lot of education in my last sort of 25 years, I suppose. And so it's given me time to reflect and sit and look at the original papers, not just the abstracts. And for my own opinion based on evidence, but for many people who work full-time at the front, you know, clinical practice, it's too difficult. You're too tired in the evening. And so NICE is brilliant when they produce a guideline. You know that it's there and it's good and it reduces that need, doesn't it, to go back and look at the originals? Absolutely. I mean, I've been very lucky to do some work with some people in America, uh, Dave Slauson and Alan Shaughnessy, who talk about the need for you as a clinician to have trusted sources yeah. of evidence rather than going away and doing a medline search for yourself and yeah. then because first of all how do you know you've got the right papers there and then if you come to read and critically appraise the papers if you're a clinician you do another things so you'll go on a critical appraisal yeah. course maybe and then a few months later when you try and critically appraise a paper you can't forgotten do it because you you've, you've forgotten how yeah. to do it so very much as those trusted sources and i think nice is a trusted source we have people whose job it is to do critical appraisal 24 7 <laughs> which is so important i mean i did um an extra degree i did a pathology and immunology degree in 1992 yeah in those days when you wanted a reference you'd go to the library yes and you'd have to search for it and they'd all be bound and the one paper you really wanted had been sent off to be bound so you couldn't get it yeah so then you think oh i'll go to the second one so you probably missed like the most important reference but you'd you know you didn't want to go back to the library because you want to go out with your friends later on it, and i'm sure you've been there as well so so now it's a lot easier with PubMed but actually it is and it isn't because there's so many that you can just with a little search anyone can access them but you don't know the source you don't know the authors you don't know the context sometimes you can only get the abstract you can't read it all and taking things from base value is really dangerous actually isn't it and this happens in all sorts of aspects of medicine not just in menopause and then the problem is I've seen a lot of articles that have a press release associated with them and then the press get hold of it Mm -hmm. And then that's it. It's a car crash, isn't it, for sometimes? Yeah. So, I mean, it's not as much of a problem as it was, as you say, historically, but the problems now are different because there is massive information overload and, you know, the advent of the internet and almost the democratisation of evidence has brought its own problems because then, as you say, if someone gets hold of a press release, often that gets in the media before people like us have had time to critically appraise it in as an objective way as possible, an unbiased way as possible. Yes. Everyone's biased because we're human beings, but yeah. 
And certainly as a GP, I had lots of people that would come to me on a Friday or whenever the health section of the mail would come out and they'd say, oh, can I have this drug for my Parkinson's disease? Quite. And then I look at, even in the mail, it's saying a study of nine people or something and I would go, oh, I'm really sorry. You know, yes. and it's expectations, these poor people. But but it is interesting. So we'll talk about a couple of the guidelines, if we may. Firstly, I think we need to talk about NICE menopause guidance because actually yeah. it came out in November 2015 and it's now a while ago wasn't it 21 yeah yes and up until this time I've been prescribing HRT based on my knowledge of the evidence and I've been I've worked with partners who refuse to prescribe it so as quickly as I'd put people on HRT they would take them off Mm. and they were saying well that's just your word against mine I'm really sorry Louise I don't agree you shouldn't be doing this this is dangerous medicine and I said well the evidence is so when the November came around and the nice guidance came out it's the happiest time I've ever been to see a nice guidance, which was a little bit conservative, but actually it was really good and really powerful just to say for the majority of women, the benefits outweigh the risks. And they did a really good section on POIs, the premature ovarian insufficiency, mm-hmm. women under the age of 40. Because I was taught at medical school, if a young woman hasn't had their periods, just make sure she's not pregnant and don't worry about it. So I feel awful that that was what I was taught, but that's all I knew. And there's quite a lot about vaginal dryness on mm. there too. So so I was thinking, this is absolutely fantastic. Around that time, there were probably about 8 or 9% of women then taking HRT. So six years later, do you know what the percentage of women taking HRT is? It's probably higher than that, but not as high as it should be, or that you might think it is. Is that is that fair? Yeah, it's about 12%. Oof, okay. In some areas, it's about 2%. And women from low socioeconomic classes, it's about 29% less. See, Louise, that's the thing that really... I said right at the start, one of the reasons NICE came about into being was to reduce unwarranted variation. And what you've just described to me is, I can see no good reason why in some areas prescribing of HRT is as low as 2%, and in other areas it must be as high as 25 30%. Yeah. So can someone explain that to me, why that is? And especially, as you say, if it's associated with inequalities and deprivation as well. That's something that NICE are really keen on. And it certainly is. um, I was talking to someone who's a doctor in Morecambe, actually, and she said her and her partner, they're both doctors in Morecambe, slightly different areas, and the HRT prescribing really varies. Mm. But it's uniformly low. And actually, since I left my GP practice, every single patient's been taken off HRT. So it'll be zero where I was. Right. You know, and I think even if you don't, believe the evidence you don't want to believe it if nice is saying it but it, then it's also about dissemination of guidance isn't it and I think this whole thing also about confirmation bias that's still very much there I was listening to Tim Minchin I went to his live one of his live gigs recently I love Tim a genius he is, he's so I brilliant love Tim. <laughs> he's so good in fact I went twice because I took my daughter and then I went <laughs> with some friends so I had the pleasure of him twice but he talks about confirmation bias. So if you're yes. driving along and a white van cuts you up, yeah. that's it. All white, white van, van drivers are awful. Yes. And so now we've got this with HRT and breast cancer. If a woman gets, if she's on HRT and gets breast cancer, of course it's the HRT that's caused it. And how do you know that? Does she yes. clean her teeth every morning? Does she brush her hair every morning? Well, maybe it's that. So maybe yes. it's because she wears blue pyjamas tonight. An association is not a cause, but we've no. got this massive... And then we've got to try and change and unpick the evidence. And how do we do that? And I'm sort of quite surprised that even NICE can't do it with the menopause. And it's quite shocking because most women who we see and speak to have been given antidepressants first line, end of. And often Mm. they've been given three or four and just said, this is all you can have because HRT is too dangerous. Mm. So it's a problem, isn't it, trying to get guidance out? What you've just 
described there is the benefits and the pitfalls of evidence-based medicine, actually, because mm. the benefits are it reduces things like confirmation bias or recall bias or availability bias where you see things with your own eyes and you therefore associate that, you ascribe that to be something that's a cause and effect. And of course, the only way that you can be sure of doing that is by doing a randomised controlled trial where you have two groups of people mm. separated by a random process and you give half of them the intervention and half of them the comparator. You follow them up for a period of time and you see what happens to them. Fantastic science at its best. Yeah, That's how totally. you determine if there's a true difference or not. The problem with that is, of course, that clinical trials are very, very expensive to run. They tend to be run by or funded by pharmaceutical industry, because, yeah. especially with their own medicines, because they're expensive, so there is the need for return on investment. And I think in particular with the menopause guidance and the menopause evidence, some of it is based on studies that were done 10, 20 years ago, where mm. the HRT that was used then is very different to the HRT yeah, used absolutely. now. But the problem with that, Louise, is that that's the evidence that we have. So yeah. one of the models that we use to describe what we do at NICE is we call it the RNLI model. So it's not the lifeboat people. R stands for research. So we translate the research into national recommendations. That's the N. And then you have the next step, which is you take national recommendations and create local care pathways, which is what your local teams do in localities. And then the third translation is from that local care pathway into the individual yeah. person. So our job at NICE, as I say, is to take the research, the best available evidence, and create recommendations for the population that we can do. So if the best evidence is this stuff from 10, 20 years ago, and there yeah. isn't the same evidence for the new so-called modern HRT, it's really difficult for us to make strong recommendations about where that should be used. And, and that's where I think some of the variation comes in, because in the other two translations, you create choice, if you like. This is what you would do locally. And then individually, that's where you get real variation potentially, because it all depends on how it's been explained to the person mm. and indeed what that person values to them and thinks important to them. It's absolutely right. And I think, you know, lots of the work that I do, obviously, we prescribe transdermal estrogen because it's not got mm. a clock risk or whatever. But actually, a lot of times, especially when I'm educating healthcare professionals, say, look, even if everyone just went to the NICE guidance, which I said are a bit conservative, but that's fine. Mm -hmm. They're still very clear about what's safe and what's good and what risks mm -hmm. are, are they? And even if you look at those risks that are in all their tables that are quite hard to understand, actually, it's actually the risk is still really low. So, and it's looking at benefits as well. And I think this is where NICE were very good because they do talk about osteoporosis. They're not looking at other health benefits, but it's still, it's fine. But I think the other thing then is looking at the individuals. And this is where the other guidance, the shared decision-making guidance, I think it came out, when did it come out? In June this year, wasn't it? Yes, it came out in June this year, yes. Yeah, and I think this is where it comes down to individuals, isn't it? So do you mind just describing what that means? No, I don't mind at all. It'd be my absolute <laughs> I thought pleasure. you were going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I don't mind. It's an interesting one because I've talked about evidence-based medicine before. So evidence-based medicine was something that, that came about in 1995. It was David Sackett and some colleagues mm. who got together and said, we need to do something about this kind of people just basing their practice on what they've always done or what they see with their own eyes. Mm. So evidence-based medicine has got three components to it. 
And I'm sorry if, if I think I'm going on a bit, but there's a reason no, why No, it's really I'm, important. I think it's great. Th- there's a reason why I'm kind of explaining this. So evidence-based medicine is the best available evidence. So the science that I just explained before, you know, the randomized controlled trial evidence or the best that we have. The clinician's expertise and experience and the person's values and preferences. So back in 1995... Evidence-based medicine was always supposed to be about best available evidence, clinician's experience, and the individual's values and preferences. And along the way, what we've done is we've concentrated on generating as much evidence as we can, and we've forgotten, I think, a little bit about... The most important bit. How do you put the person at the centre of this and that we're doing the right thing for them? So shared decision-making... There's a whole sort of movement that came out of that, and um, with nice, I'm happy to say, and proud to say, we're at the kind of the, the centre of that in many ways. But there's been lots of other people around the world who have led the way around shared decision making. And so, as part of this international collaborative, one of the things that we were asked to do was to produce a guideline on shared decision making, so we could look at the evidence and say, right, how do you do this? What is shared decision making? How do you do it? Can you make some recommendations for commissioners and organisations made some recommendations for individuals as to what they can do to make shared decision-making part of their everyday practice. And it's probably worthwhile just focusing on what shared decision-making is. And as I said, we came up with a definition of it. And there's quite a few important points to it. So it's a process, first of all, where the patient and the clinician work together and have a conversation in partnership with each other And they identify the best course of action at that point in time for that individual. So it's about sharing what matters to them. It's about finding out what matters to them. And then it's about explaining the different interventions that are available to them and the different risks and benefits of those different interventions so that they can make a decision as to what's most important to them. So it's interesting before, I'm just going to pick you up on something you said before, Louise, because you said, (laughs) and we all do it. You said the risks and benefits of HRT, the risks are quite low for HRT. So what you've done there is you've put your own value on that low. And I think most people would agree with you, but we should avoid using terms like low and high because what's low to one person might not be low to another. No, and I think (laughs) risk is a really difficult thing. So if someone says to me, Louise, you've got a three in a thousand chance of dying by crossing the road yeah that means nothing to me no. am i going to be those three or am i going to be one of the nine i don't care about all the other people i just want to know about me and then the whole relative risk absolute risk is a minefield it's a minefield it's quite soon after the menopause guidance came out i realized that i was perimenopausal myself okay because my brain had gone <laughs> and my joints and muscles were stiff and i was a moody miserable thing and so i started taking hrt And I thought, wow, this is amazing. My brain's coming back. Very exciting. And then the British Journal of Cancer brought out a paper on the 23rd of August. And I remember it because it was my daughter's birthday and I was taking her to a drama group and I opened the the headlines at six in the morning when I got up. And it was like, oh my goodness, breast cancer, three times risk with HRT users. Classic. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to take my patch off. Yeah. And just as I'm feeling better. And I, my poor daughter was so annoyed because I ended up being on a news and all sorts of media stuff. But I still wasn't sure what does this risk mean? What is three times? Mm. And uh, mm. you're absolutely right. So if my only concern in life was about breast cancer, if that's 
every day I was worried about mm-hmm. it, then a very small risk is a massive risk. For exactly. Me. You know, it's all I would worry about. So if you as my physician or pharmacist would say to me, Louise, the risk is really low, but that's going to ruin my life worrying. And if I get breast cancer, I'm going to blame myself for taking that HRT. Yes. Well, don't ever take, because we can never prove anything. Quite. Whereas if my fear, actually, my personal fear is osteoporosis and dementia. Actually. Yes. But that's an individual. And I think what's very interesting, actually, is when I started my clinic, I started my clinic, actually, I just wanted to do one day a week to help some of my friends get off antidepressants who weren't my patients. Mm -hmm. And I felt sorry for them being on antidepressants. And I couldn't get a job, as you know, in the NHS. So my mentor said, just set up a private clinic, which still really grates with me. I hate doing private medicine. So I thought I'd do one day a week, help some of my friends. And then lots of other women decided to come and see me. And they'd say, do you know what, Dr. I just don't want HRT. Just tell me what mm. I can do. So I'd, I started printing off booklets so I could give them information. And I'd go through everything and I'd say, well, just have a read. And I wasn't doing the podcast then. I obviously didn't have the app or as many resources. So I said, it's absolutely your decision. But why don't you have a read and come back mm. and we'll talk about it again. So then one by one, they'd come out and say, do you know what? I really want HRT. And I've also... Mm. I spend time saying everything's reversible. So what you decide today is not necessarily what you're going to decide tomorrow or in three months' time. And you are in control of this medicine, so you can stop it at any time. Because I think that's really important, isn't it, for people to know. Absolutely. But now people come to the clinic and they say, I've downloaded Balance app, I've listened to your podcasts, I've read this information. And a lot of them have read nice guidance. They know it better than I do now. Mm -hmm. And they say, I really want HRT, actually. Mm. And I've been refused it because for no reason, I mean, but I want it and I'm prepared to take any risk. And then we see a lot of women who've had breast cancer. And this is a very you know, specialist area. But they say, I've made the decision based on how I feel and the information I've read. And again, we spend a lot of time. But I think this individualisation of care, not just in menopause, but anything we do, it's really important, but also the reversibility as well. And I think that's what yes. comes out in the shared decision-making guidance, isn't it? Nothing set in concrete. Well, no, as I said before, it's about what's best for you at this moment in time, and you are allowed to change your mind. Yeah. So within the guideline, we talk about the importance of it, the benefits of shared decision-making. People think that, oh, if I involve people in decision-making, then that will increase my consultation time. Yeah. Then that's not true. It doesn't no, seem to be no. the truth from the evidence. And you said before... Things are getting better from that sort of the paternalistic approach to medicine, but they're still not anywhere near as good as they should be, I don't think. The CQC every year do a primary care survey and an inpatient survey and ask lots of questions of people about the standard of care. One of the questions they ask is, did the doctor have a conversation about you as if you were not there? So talk to the team around you but didn't actually address you. How many people out of 100 do you think says that that happens often? It should be zero. I'd love to say less than 10, but I'm sure it's more than 50. It's about 9% of people who say that happens. And that should be a never event as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And it goes back to, I mean, some of the other stuff, the, the other basic kindness and empathy yeah. that needs to come out of this. Kate Granger is a great example of... She was a doctor herself and was diagnosed with cancer and talked about her experience yeah. of having the diagnosis broken yes. to her. And it was important. So then she set up the Hello, My Name Is campaign. So yes, we have, the, which we is have phenomenal. It is phenomenal. But you think we need a campaign so that people can be basically nice to each other and kind. And Do you know what, Jonathan, a few years ago, I had um, pancreatitis. I was really poorly. 
in hospital and um, I really missed my children actually and I had been in hospital for about five days and the nurse came to do my blood pressure and my daughter just sent me a little video of her playing the trombone and I burst into tears just because I really missed her and the nurse mm. came up to me and she said, You're right. I said I won't really miss my daughter oh I'll come back and do your blood pressure later she said she didn't say oh you're getting so much better you'll be home soon or didn't say oh that's sad you know and I it's really stuck with me and I know she's yeah. busy and I know she wanted to do her round and, and I, and I, I always think yeah and I I've always tried to really listen and just you know because I think yes. everyone's got stories and everyone's got something else but it's difficult well, they have indeed and I don't know a healthcare clinician who wakes up in the morning and says well I'm going to do a really bad job today absolutely but not. people as you say get busy and you forget and I think the problem is also when I try and talk about come on let's improve menopause care in the NHS everyone just goes oh we've got too much to do and <laughs> <laughs> menopausal women and I can say it because I was one are very demanding actually yes. and they're very anxious and they ruminate a lot and they yeah. talk a lot and you know I was refused HRT from my GP so I had to go to one of my mentors actually and when I phoned his clinic he didn't have an appointment for six months and mm. I was so rude on the phone to the receptionist <laughs> and it was just awful looking back but and they, so you can see, you can see how you're perceived as like, oh, this crazy menopausal woman, which of course I was. <laughs> but actually, you know, we know that we did a survey of women that come to the clinic. 17% have seen at least six GPs in the year before they come. Really? And that goes down to less than 2% in the year after because they're not going back because they feel better. They're not going back with their joint pains and their headaches and their palpitations and their urinary symptoms and everything else. They're also not going back with their craziness. You know, come on, give me a diagnosis. I've not got fibromyalgia. I haven't got chronic fatigue. I haven't got mm. long COVID. Help me. And, and so these women, you know, I had a woman the other day, she said, I've been back to my doctor every week for the last year and they're just sick of me I know they are but I know something's not right so actually it's a real investment and we we worked out actually I did a survey of 5,000 women and we found that 7% took at least 10 GP consultation just to get a diagnosis of the menopause which of course they can do themselves if they've got the right tools if that gets reduced to two we worked out with some modeling that it would save 750,000 GP appointments a year yeah so it's worth it, really. It is. And that, again, one of my great passions is the communication skills and consultation yeah. skills and how you have meaningful conversations with people in a in an efficient yet effective yeah. way. Conversations can solve complex problems, but just doing yeah. more data doesn't solve complex problems. It's the conversations that are important. No, you're absolutely right. And when I started in general practice, my trainer said, you're going to be an awful GP <laughs> because you've come from the hospital medicine and you won't be listening to the patients at all. And so I made a big effort to really listen, but also play with the consultations a bit because you yeah. can really change them depending on what the patient's want and their expectations and and actually my husband's a surgeon and we were talking about consultations the other day and he said his most rewarding consultations is actually when he refuses to operate on people yes and that sounds really weird doesn't it but he's very specialist lots of people come to him for they think he's going to cure them and do this and he does a lot of amazing surgery does a lot of reconstructive surgery but sometimes actually these people don't want to be fobbed off by another operation they want someone to listen to them and Quite. know that their story is real Quite. and it's not all going to be corrected by something or a treatment or a surgery or whatever indeed and that's so important isn't it it is yeah i mean one of the things we talk about in the shared decision making guideline is the concept of the three talk model i don't know if you've heard of that yeah. where you have your choice talk your option talk and your decision talk and part of it is you know introducing that you have a choice here yeah. And also finding out what the person's agenda is 
it's estimated that only about 20% of consultations result in full disclosure of the person's agenda. So in other words, what's important to them, what good looks like would look like to them next week, next month, next year. And then the option talk where you sort of, that's when you can potentially introduce the different options that are available. So for a menopause, it would be, right, here are your options here. One of them being do nothing, of course. Mm. Not do nothing as such, but, you know, not necessarily an intervention. Introducing the different options and then actually allowing people to go away and have a think about it and giving them some literature, perhaps, as you described, you know, where you talk about the benefits and risks of taking HRT, the different types of HRT that are available, and then maybe rearranging for another appointment to say, right, okay, go away, have a think about it, chat to your nearest and dearest and people you trust, and then come back and we'll make a decision together on this. And if you do that, you know, that doesn't sound terribly onerous, but when you're in the busy maze of general practice and you've got, you know, massive queue outside the door, I can see how people just firefight and perhaps don't take the time that potentially, if they did, then it would actually make their lives a bit easier because they're, People will be, as you say, will be less likely to come back in the future. Yeah, and it, it is quite scary. My trainer, John Sanders, years ago said to me, sometimes when you're having a difficult consultation, you don't know where it's going. Just say to the patient, what were you expecting to happen today? Exactly. And I was like, I've never asked that before in an asthma no. clinic. You wouldn't ask that. And he said, no, try it. And it's like, oh, why have you come today? What is it about today that's important to you? And sometimes they're like, well, I didn't get an appointment on another day. Yeah. But it's often they will, that's your most revealing and you realise what they're coming so for and what they're concerned. So... Yeah. The other rabbit hole that I've become very interested in is um, conversational analysis and linguistics, the use of language and mm. how important it is. I mean, what you've just said there is asking open questions, mm. which is really important, rather than asking closed questions where you just get a yes or no answer. But even saying something at the end of the conversation, and this is about revealing people's agendas, if you say to someone, is there anything else I can help you with? Mm. Or if you say, is there something else I can help you with? Mm. there's about 60% more disclosure if you say is there something else mm. compared to is there anything else isn't that fascinating just that one word amazing, or even that just it? one part of a word can yeah. make such a difference it's incredible it's you know and I've always said it's such a privilege being a medical person being a doctor listening and it's, it's all about words I think it's so important so I'm really really grateful for your time today Jonathan and the shared decision making guidelines are available for anyone on the NICE website we'll put a link in the notes because I really feel everyone should look at them for any area of medicine so but just before we finish Jonathan can you just give me three tips for people who maybe feel they're not being listened to in the consultation how can they use this shared decision making for their advantage so maybe two tips for patients and one tip for a healthcare provider if that's possible Yeah, okay, so I think the first tip for a patient would be it's okay to ask, so ask questions. And if you're not confident about asking questions, actually take somebody else along into the consultation with you, Mm. an advocate, somebody, again, you trust, who can listen for you and remind you of the things that you discussed beforehand that are important to you. In terms of for, for clinicians, I was really impressed. The previous chair of NICE was a guy called David Hasler, who was a GP, and he was just great. And he talked about consultation skills for doctors. And he said, there's all these different ways that you can teach consultation skills, but there's only four things you need to have good conversations. Shut up, listen, because if you don't shut up, you can't listen. Show some empathy and know something. Not everything, but know something. If you do those four things in every consultation, then you're doing really well. People 
tend to interrupt people when they're having conversations rather than letting people talk. So shutting up and listening is really, really important. And I think the other thing that I would say would be practice your conversation skills. It's not something that we get taught enough of as human beings, whether it's a doctor, whether it's a pharmacist. Um, you know, undergraduate curriculum tends to be about knowledge and learning facts, not learning how to communicate. And you can do it and you can get better at it. One of the things we did with the Shared Decision Making Guideline was produce an e-learning resource. And one of the things that we have in that are computer-based patients where you can practice your consultation skills in a safe environment. So the problem about practicing conversation skills with a real person is that you can upset that person and you can destroy your relationship. The good thing about a computer is they don't have feelings. So if you say something wrong <laughs> to the computer, it, wrong. It, doesn't it doesn't matter. You just start again. So th- that would be my three things, I think. Great advice. Really, really great. And very empowering and uplifting. So thank you ever so much for your time, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Louise. For more information about the perimenopause and menopause, please visit my website, balance-menopause.com, or you can download the free Balance app, which is available to download from the App Store or from Google Play. Google Play.